0: For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted, or name your land desolate. But you will be called Hefzibah, and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies, and never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat and praise the Lord, and those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary." Pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to to daughter Zion, see, your Savior comes. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after. The city no longer deserted. The word of the Lord.
1: We're taking the time during, but uh, in between our last sermon series, the end of that sermon series, and the beginning of Advent, to take another look at what we're calling the classics. These are uh, passages, they're sermons that we feel really are foundational to the identity of our church and what we're all about here. And this one um, comes from a series that I did, I guess, about 10 years ago, nine years ago, called The New Names of God. And that is how we are called to live out of a new name, a new identity that replaces uh, and transcends the old names that we have been living by. And in in 2008, uh, police in Croatia found the dead body of a woman that no one was looking for. And she was found sitting in her armchair in front of her TV. And there were no so- signs of foul play. In fact, the last time that anyone had seen her was 1966. She had been dead in her armchair for 42 years, 15,000 days without a single human being noticing that she was missing. Now, this story left out a couple of details that being a weirdo that I am, I wanted to know, uh, for instance, was the TV still on and who had turned it off if not, and also Did she own this apartment, or was the superintendent just really slow at collecting rent? I'd like that job. It sounds kind of cush. Well, the police looked up this woman's birth certificate, and she was born. Her name was Hedviga Golik. She was born in 1924, which would have made her 37 years old at the time of death in 1966. 37 years old. She wasn't an elderly woman who had outlived all of her friendships. She was in the prime of her life, and yet nobody noticed that they hadn't seen her around. Zero people in 42 years stopped by to check in on her. She was completely, totally alone and apparently unloved. When this passage was written, the book of Isaiah was written, the nation of Israel felt very alone in the world. They felt very unloved. It seemed that God had forgotten them. It was written to Israel after they had spent nearly 200 years in captivity to other nations, and finally Cyrus, the king of Persia, is now giving them permission to go back to Jerusalem, return to their homeland after 200 years. But a couple of things happen. One is that not all of them go. Some of them choose to stay in Persia. And those that do go, they've returned to Jerusalem to find that their city has been utterly destroyed. And the rebuilding effort that begins hits snag after snag, and it's not going so well. And that's the context that Isaiah is written into. In this context, Israel's circumstances had named them. In verse 4, we read that other people talked about Israel as the nation that was deserted and desolate. They were named by other nations as desolate, as a deserted people. Their identity, you see, had been shaped not by the glory days when the kingdom was Huge and militarily powerful, the glory days of David and Solomon, but their identity was shaped by their slavery, by being forgotten by God, the forgotten children. And through Isaiah, God wants to tell them that in fact he hasn't forgotten them. He can't forget them, you see, because they are his delight. And he tells them that, and he tells them, secondly, that they are sought after. Not forgotten, but sought after. He says, no longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. Shakespeare's line about all the world being a stage has never been more true than perhaps it is today when we have dozens upon dozens of social media sites that are inviting us to put our lives on constant display. And the largest, of course, probably the most hated is Facebook. We use it, but we hate it at the same time. And it started, you may not know this, but it was started as a website called Face Smash, which sounds like the name that... uh, college-age male would come up with. Well, what did Mark Zuckerberg use Face Smash for? He took pictures of women and put them side by side and had Harvard vote on which one was better looking, which one was hotter, of course. Now, as deeply perverse and sad that is, it wasn't even original because there was a very popular site at that time called Am I hot or not? And millions upon millions of people put their own pictures on this site so that they could be rated on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being hot and 1 obviously being not. They willingly subjected themselves to being reduced to a number based upon one photo. They willingly subjected themselves to be mocked by comments that were degrading and stunningly cruel. Why would anyone do this? And in 2004, at kind of the height of this site, when they were getting millions upon millions of views per, per month, Gary Rivlin wrote in the New York Times about a woman named Angela, and she had received a 90% negative rating. Not a ten, but a one. She was not a not. And you'd think that this would be absolutely crushing to Angela, but she says, it really picked my self-esteem up to know that there are still some people out there who find me beautiful. That's got to be one of the saddest sentences I've ever read. Nine out of ten people Mocked her, degraded her, voted her as a 5 or a 4 or a 1, and yet she looked to the, the one person, the one 10% that said, she's hot, and she lived off that. Like all of us, Angela desired to be loved. And the Christian story tells us that we are made this way, that we are created to desire love and to desire to give love, to be in loving relationships. And the first pages of Scripture tell us that it's a book about relationships. It's not good that man is alone. And to avoid that not good status, that status of being alone, we will go to extraordinary lengths. Some of them are very maladaptive and sad, like Angela's submitting ourselves to terrible indignities for just a a taste of human connection, just a sense that someone might find us attractive. And others will go about it in more culturally approved ways, in ways that are almost demanded of us by our culture, like marriage, where we willingly choose to adjoin ourselves to another human being until death. It sounds like a a bad setup to a duel of some sort. If we don't make it to death, still married to this person, then they're going to take half of our stuff. That's what we're signing up for, and yet we do it. It's expected of us, and we enter in with great joy and expectation. Marriage has this tremendously high failure rate and a great risk of losing our happiness, losing what we have, and we still do it. Marriage, you see, is seen as a cure for our aloneness. It's an answer to us being alone in this world, being lost in this world. And it does have profound power to re-narrate our lives, to silence the disapproving voices from our past. And on the other hand, the positive power is that we can endure the worst that life can throw at us if we know that this one person who we love delights in us, if we know that they find us lovely, if we know that they are our everything, if we know that we're safe with this one person, then we can face life and we can endure human indignities And so no wonder Jesus chooses marriage to illustrate the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. And Isaiah says this very same thing. Instead of deserted and desolate, you will be called Hephzibah. That means my delight is in you. And you will be called Beulah, which means married. It means covenanted together. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. That is, at that moment where marriage is everything perfect and you haven't encountered all of the difficulties, you've encountered the power to narrate your life in positive ways and to make you feel so wonderful and not yet that really negative side of marriage that unhealthy marriages can really drive us into the ground and be the most lonely place on the planet, When a bridegroom sees the bride in that moment, that is what God is trying to capture, that that's how he thinks of you. That's the relationship that he wants to have. As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, verse 5, so will your God rejoice over you. These are things that all of us long to know that we long to have solved in our lives, that there is someone that rejoices over us, that there is someone that will go to any length to rescue us, to have us, to be in relationship with us. These are things that we all long to know. These are things that we need to know as human beings. And marriages, you see, are haunted. They're destroyed by spouses that enter into, marriages, into, into marriage still looking for answers to those most basic questions. Those of us that enter into marriage and are still asking, Am I loved? Am I enough? Am I sought after? Who am I in this world? You see, on one hand, healthy marriages happen when both spouses have previously answered those questions. They know the answers to those questions. They're stable and solid, and so therefore they don't demand and overpower their spouse by trying to gain that from them. But if you come into marriage still trying to answer those basic questions about who you are and where meaning is found and are you loved, then we have a tendency to crush the other person, crush our spouses, and this is true in any relationship, not just marriage, because we're constantly trying to extract the answers that solve our most basic, most fundamental questions about life. And no relationship can shoulder that burden. No relationship can survive that, friends. But if you come into a relationship, you come into a marriage already knowing Verse 11, the Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your Savior comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. You will be called. You will be renamed, you see, sought after. The city no longer deserted. One of my ridiculous goals in life is to make it onto one of those uh, YouTube compilations called Superman Dads, where the fathers, like, save their children from being hurt at the very last minute. So, where the son is sitting in the bleachers, and he's got the hot dog, like, halfway in, and it's not paying attention, and this bat flies into the stands, and right at the last minute, the dad reaches out and, you know, blocks it with one hand. That's my dream, is to To be in that moment and actually be on filmed, but on film. But I've actually, my family knows stories of where I've kind of done the opposite. Thankfully, not on film, not yet. But one of the stories that we like to tell is when my second son Oliver was about four or five, and we were at a a hotel, and we were on the fifth floor. And I guess everyone else was down on the bottom floor, and we walked to the bank of elevators, and there's two elevators. And so I can't remember whose uh, idea this was. I'm going to say it was Oliver's idea. But let's say he wanted to race me down where we were going to be on, opposite, on different elevators. And so we got them both open. He entered into one, and I entered into the other. And this sounds like a fun idea, except what have I forgotten. Any really smart parents out there, you'll know that what I've forgotten is that if anyone on floors four through two presses the button, they need the elevator, one of those elevators is going to stop. Well, it turns out it was Oliver's elevator that stopped on floor three. But when you're in a hotel, you know that most floors look exactly the same, and so he just saunters out thinking, I've won. I beat my dad, and he was looking for me to let me know that I guess that was what he was doing. He kept walking and walked all the way down the hallway and took a left and kept going. So mine goes straight down to the bottom floor, and I walk out thinking I have won. And so I turn to the other elevator, you know, and I can't wait because this is, you know, a dad's perfect moment. It's to let your son know that you have won. And I just couldn't wait for the doors to open so I could say to this four- or five-year-old, I've totally smoked you. I beat you. But he didn't step out. In fact, there was some stranger on the elevator, and I was now in a blind panic because I didn't know where Oliver was. And so I made for the stairwell and started running up the stairs, opening every door But looking down each hallway, because he had turned the corner, he was not there. Suddenly, Oliver's identity has changed from, I'm with my dad, and I'm playing games, and I'm racing him, and I'm going to win. His identity changed from that to, I'm a lost child. Oliver, I'll pay for your therapy whenever you need it. Sorry about that. But Oliver was now lost and, according to him, in his mind, utterly powerless to change his circumstances. But what he did know was that I was looking for him, that he was sought after, that he was pursued. And if he could wait long enough, if he could survive, I would probably eventually find him. And he was smart enough to find a a staff person in the hotel and let them know. And about that moment, I walked around the corner, and I saw him tell her, that's my dad. And he ran to me, and we embraced. And, you know, I apologized profusely, mostly to Katie, because I had almost lost her child. Israel, you see, had been stuck, abandoned, deserted, and they couldn't free themselves from their captivity. And in the same way, many of us are still stuck this morning. We're captive to past hurts and past wounds. We're hurt from parental abandonment, and that has become the story that we're living out of and trying to solve and trying to fix Maybe we're living out of these literal names that we've been called in middle school or high school when kids are really terrible to one another. And in order to take hold of these new names, you see, that God wants to give us, we have to first see how we've built our identity around these negative names and experiences. And we've got to see how we've either allowed them To define us and thus imprison us to them, or how we've tried to overcome them by creating new replacement names for ourselves. And in both of those circumstances, we're actually stuck in the very same place because as we try to create and maintain these replacement names, I'm now the dependable one. I'm the loyal one. I'm the person that gets things done. I show up early, I stay late. I'm the rescuer in my family. I'm the peacemaker in my family. I'm independent. I make my own way in the world. I'm a world changer. I'm a head turner, even in the middle age. And none of those things are negative in and of themselves. The problem is that these narratives become imprisoning. And when they do so, these narratives not only have heroes, that is, us, but they have villains, that is, other people that challenge those narratives. It's fine to do these things, to be the rescuer, to be independent, to show up on time and leave late. It's fine to do these things. But if there's our source for being, we're in trouble. Because these names will crush us just as much as those negative, awful names that we're trying to live out of and away from. And they'll not only crush us, but they'll crush those that we love. They'll crush our spouse, they'll crush our children, they'll crush our roommate. Because, see, we're trying to extract from them the counter power, the counter narrative to those negative stories we've been living for so long. Friends, I think what the Bible tells us throughout and what Isaiah is telling us is that we have to find an answer to our human aloneness outside of our ability to create and then maintain powerful new identities. We have to find a way to answer our human aloneness outside of giving other people the sole determinative power to either solve or destroy our quest for meaning and our quest for love. And just as I would have gone to the ends of the earth to find Oliver, because why? Was it duty? Was it this is what good dads do? i got to go find my son now. One more thing that I have to do for him. Not at all. It was my joy to go find him. And there was rejoicing when we, were, when we found one another. Just as I as a human parent, an imperfect parent, would have gone to the ends of the earth to find Oliver, God says to each of you that there is no place on earth that he won't go to find you. There is no desert that is too dry that he can't come with his grace and begin to saturate and begin to water. There is no place on earth, friends, that you're truly alone, that you are his utter delight and that you are desired and you are sought after by the one that made you one that made the universe. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray, that we would be a people that live out of these new identities, out of these new names, that we would know that whatever we're facing this week, whatever trauma, whatever boredom, whatever trial that we are longing to avoid this week, Whatever conflict we're having relationally, that we are still sought after, no matter how bad we've blown it. Maybe our sadness and our circumstances are are terrible all due to our bad choices, and yet we are not alone, and you have not abandoned us or deserted us or left us to be desolate. Help us to believe that and help us to live into that reality this week. In Jesus' name, amen.